You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Oil markets these days have been a story of push and pull. We have on one side the possible supply disruptions coming from the Iranian-U.S. Uh, dispute over the nuclear development. You have the situation in Libya. On the other side, you have the prospect for even slower global growth in the face of uh, rising trade tensions. Here to help us understand why it is that the slowing global growth is what's winning out right now with prices now uh, at their lowest since early March is Dr. Ellen Wald, president of Trans. Transversal Consulting, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center, as well as a contributor to Bloomberg Opinion. Uh, and she is in studio today in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Uh, so thank you so much for being here. So let's start with that. Why is it that the global slowdown is the story that's taking preeminence over this other very real idea of a supply disruption? I think the big reason here is that a lot of the news and the headlines are really all about the global slowdown. They're all about, you know, every every other day we get a new headline of another economic indicator showing that global growth is slowing down, economic growth is slowing down, trade tensions are making everything worse. And then meanwhile, on the other side, we're hearing that Iranian exports are significantly lower. Venezuela isn't exporting any oil to the United States. We've got problems in Russia. I mean, real serious issues with this pipeline that have really dampened down Russian oil production. And yet, at the same time, everything is just, it's all the demand story. So we've got definitely a supply crunch, and yet, we're seeing markets, they're only paying attention to demand. Where will, we, if, where will we see it in the data, this supply issue that you're talking about? Well, we're seeing it right now. Uh, first of all, looking at what's happening in Iran is and we're keeping a really close eye on this because uh, exports really seem to cut off right uh, at the beginning of May. But now we're actually seeing some tankers coming up into uh, Iranian ports, filling with oil, keeping a very close eye on them. We do know that Iran has exported about 3 million barrels of oil to Syria, believe it or not. Or not and that uh, data comes from tankertrackers.com and uh, it seems like they're basically using Syria as a holding ground for their oil because they filled up all their other storage containers and that oil has to go somewhere uh, and so we need to we're waiting basically on data to show is this oil going to go to China and is it going to 
enhance and really uh, inflate the tensions that are already going on in that region. That's really interesting, actually, and raises a whole other specter of conflict that I hadn't worried about, but I will start to worry about now. I guess that one question I have is, do you think that markets are wrong, uh, that they're paying attention to the wrong thing, and that the potential supply disruptions really are uh, perhaps the most dominant uh, of these two factors? I think if we weren't seeing these constant headlines and, and fears about demand, we'd definitely see oil prices going up now uh, because of, of what we're seeing in terms of the, the supply issues. We're also, it's not sure, I mean, it does look like OPEC wants to roll over its supply reduction agreement. It's not sure, but it does it does look like that. And that would normally send send prices up. So uh, I do think that, that we are seeing some, some issues there. And um, this obsession with demand and with uh, economic slowdown is really just keeping prices down. So you mentioned Russia. Talk to us about that. I, I understood there was a, they had some issues with their pipeline, some contaminated oil. How severe is it and how quickly can they fix it and get it ramped back up? Well, it's actually a lot more severe than we were led to believe initially. Uh, when we first heard about this, it was in April. There were some um, refineries in Eastern Europe that were reporting that they were receiving contaminated oil. And uh, they really it's very, very bad to put this in their refinery equipment. So they really can't uh, process that oil. And they said, oh, two weeks, it'll be fixed. Well, it turns out that you know now we're looking at well into June before they completely fix this problem because they have to basically clean out the entire pipeline. Meanwhile, Russia has actually cut back on its production, uh, believe it or not. And Russia was the one of the, the few countries in this OPEC uh, agreement that hadn't cut uh, to its promised amounts. Now they're actually below the quota uh, that they've agreed upon just because of this contamination issue. And so we're definitely going to see it go on into June. Uh, it's possible could it could affect supplies uh, even uh, after June. What are you expecting out of the OPEC meeting? As people have speculated that they will continue with the output cuts that have been planned, uh, despite the potential disruptions to supplies, that what you're expecting? I'm, that's that's the expectation is that they will roll over basically the the agreement as is. Although today we did hear news that Russia is looking for increased flexibility. Uh, it's not not entirely clear what that means, but that could definitely throw a wrench in their plans. Combined with the fact that Russia is also looking for flexibility in terms of scheduling, uh, they want to move the date of the OPEC meeting, which is now for the end of June. They want to move it to July because the Russian oil minister can't make it uh, in June, and this is causing a big consternation amongst the OPEC countries uh, because they they see it as this is their OPEC meeting. Russia's not even a member. Why should they move the date of their meeting for this country that's not even part of OPEC? And I think it's exposing some of the larger cracks in OPEC that have to do with the fact that they basically kind of sold their soul to the Russians. He can't make it? What's he going to be doing? Going <laughs> yeah. on vacation or he something? can't make an OPEC meeting? I mean, He's I, just the energy guy. I, I mean, <laughs> it's just sort of, what, what, what's, what, what's more pressing I mean, what's interesting, I I learned that he he can't make the meeting, but then we also learned that they're storing oil in Syria. So, uh, Dr. Ellen Wald, thank you so much. You always have great information on the global oil markets. We appreciate you uh, coming in. Dr. Wald is president of Transversal Consulting, also a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center, and of course, a Bloomberg Opinion contributor. Well, amid rising trade tensions, the equity markets are off approximately 5% from recent highs. So the question many investors are asking is whether whether this is a healthy dip or something more. 
to help us answer that question, we welcome our next guest, David Dietz. David is founder, president, and chief investment strategist of Point View Wealth Management, located in the happening metropolis of Summit, New Jersey. David, thanks so much for joining us. So again, let's just start real basic here. Is this a healthy pullback in the market, or is it something more fundamental that investors need to be concerned about? Well, truth be told, no one knows for sure, but certainly this is the type of pullback which we see every single year, often multiple times. I mean, to put this into context, we're up about 13% year to date. We're down 5% this month, but that's 5% off all-time highs. So although everything bears watching, this is not a crisis by, by a long shot. Well, take a listen to what Morgan Stanley's James Gorman had to say about it. He was speaking with Bloomberg's uh, Tom McKenzie, and honestly, uh, he was talking about how the risk is is that equity markets have more downside uh, than upside, but that the magnitude is not so big. Would you agree? <laughs> well, um, you know, certainly, I, I do think that there's further risk to the downside, of course. But, you know, let's put it into context here. I think three key things are driving this market right now. One is a very strong economy. We just got an affirmation, basically, of a, a three print on U.S. GDP for the first quarter. We've got the lowest unemployment since the Vietnam War era. We've got super low interest rates, which makes affordability for house building, capital expenditures great. What's the big problem, of course, is the trade talks with China. We don't know. Since that tweet on May 5th, everything started to unravel. But if one tweet can undo it, quite frankly, another tweet could put this um, uh, put this back together again. So, you know, we think one should be selectively still buying in this market. What are we buying selectively in this market then? Uh, you know, I I would cite two sectors. One is generally tech stocks, because I do think that there are secular, not just cyclical tailwinds behind this sector, where it's almost imperative for banks, everyone in this economy, to get the latest and greatest to keep up with productivity and be competitive. Second, of course, I think with the- Wait, 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 wait. before you move on from tech, because yeah. everybody wants to be a tech company right now, and everybody calls themselves a tech company, and there are tech areas that are doing well and tech areas- Uber that aren't. So I'm just wondering, what are you talking about when you're talking about buying tech? Well, certainly you want selectivity. Um, th there are many, many tech names w which are short on earnings, high on valuation, and we would we would be steering clear of that. The one we'd be citing today would be Intel. Um, why Intel? Because Intel is like the world's largest microprocessor manufacturer. And now that we have artificial intelligence, now that we have the Internet of Things, now that we're soon going to have autonomous driving, microprocessors are going everywhere. They're the company that's best positioned to handle all that. Meanwhile, you have a valuation that you can stomach is trading at about 10 times earnings. It's about 44, 45. That's down from 60. So you have almost a 20, 25% pullback. This is a great entry point for these long-term trends. So one of the names that I know you've mentioned in the past uh, is uh, Wells Fargo, and it's in a sector that, uh, you know, I think investors are very uncertain about, number one, in terms of the big global financials. And then number two, it's got some company-specific issues, reputational issues, management issues. What makes you... Uh, bullish on Wells Fargo. Well, let's let's start with you know the macro financials are the the sector that that is always poised to to do better and never seems to. And I think one of the big culprits right now is very low interest rates. Now, um, of course, we're seeing the interest rates at the lowest point since fall of 2017. My guess is with just a little bit of constructive progress on China, those interest rates are going to move back up. We're seeing some movement in the right direction today, and that's going to improve 
improve net interest margins. So financials, very cheap now. If we get just a little bit more uh, of a net interest margin, I think banks are going to do well. Now, why Wells Fargo? So there's a bad news and a good news. The good news is that it's probably the best franchise in my view, in America today, it's coast to coast. It's focusing on that middle market uh, lending. It's focusing on retail banking. It has one of the largest share of those sticky FDIC insured low cost deposits that do not move and they've steered clear of the more volatile capital markets. So that's the good news. The bad news, of course, is they are basically without a leader. They have an interim uh, corporate lawyer as a leader. Um, Jamie Dimon had some very negative comments about that just a couple of days ago. He happens to be a competitor and uh, so I, would, I wouldn't expect anything less. <laughs> um, so I think if you get a well-known, prestigious, someone from the outside coming in who sets the right tone, I think you could get a significant pop in that stock. And again, while you're waiting, you have close to 4% dividend on a stock that was at uh, January of last year, 65. Now it's below 50, so you're about 30% off. Another stock pick, CVS, uh, shares down 41% going back since uh, the end of 2015 what are you seeing here? Uh, I wish their prescription drug prices were down 41%. Um, but here's here's what I see. First of all, you've got the, a macro situation here where politicians on both sides of the aisle are beating on health care. They want prices to be lower. Now that we're entering the political season, there's some radical calls for single-payer um, uh, health care system. Uh, all of that would be potential uncertainty, if not a negative, and all health care stocks are down. CVS, I think, is a sure survivor, not more than a survivor, a winner. It's really three companies in one. You've got a coast-to-coast pharmacy operation, close to 10,000 stores, making about 1.4 billion prescriptions a year. Then, of course, they've got a, a great uh, pharmacy benefits manager in the form of Caremark, but now they vertically integrated with the acquisition of, of Aetna, which gives them 20 million insurance customers. So one of the problems right now is, believe it or not, that merger has not been finally approved even though government authorities signed off on it, it still has to be signed off by a judge who wants to take a second look. Now, if all the parties right. say, go ahead, I think once that judge makes the right decision, that stock moves higher. But isn't there just, just for healthcare, there's just always this overhang of, uh, gee, what are the politicians going to be saying? What are the government regulations? It just seems like it's always in the crosshairs and there's so much overhang just from news about regulation. Yeah, you know, it's a great point. Certainly, we have seen that before with proposals for Hillary Care, with proposals in the first couple of years of the Obama administration. But what happens is ultimately, and I believe is the case now, prices now reflect that kind of dismal outlook where it can't catch a break and the politicians are beating it. And at the end of the day, we want the best health care possible. The um, uh, population is growing worldwide. There's, there's demand. And I think ultimately, um, it will become business as usual and stock prices will move higher. David Dietz, thank you so much for being with us here. Uh, David Dietz is founder, president, and chief investment strategist at Point View Wealth Management in Summit, New Jersey. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more 
at QatarEconomicForum.com. Paul, we talk a lot about the data that a lot of websites uh, collect, and the question is, what can you do with it? And Yelp has taken a way uh, to use it to try to indicate what the economy, how, what shape the economy is in. Joining us now is Carl Bialik, data science editor at Yelp. Uh, Carl, so happy to have you here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Full disclosure, Carl and I went to high school together and worked on the school paper together. <laughs> I'm so paper. glad to see you. <laughs> Love it. Um, breaking stories back break, then. Yeah, exactly. Um, lots of them. So so Carl, what, what exactly is uh, Yelp's economic average? It's a benchmark of the local economy, and it brings together 30 different really important but also really specific sectors in Yelp uh, across our most important really areas of the economy, which are restaurants and food, nightlife, shopping, and services, which are really to us the backbone of the local economy. So we've chosen... 30, I'm sure you and your listeners could recognize that number as like maybe a crucial number for <laughs> benchmarks of, of economic health and, and market strength. And, you know, it has it has a long history and it allows us to really cover the breadth of these kinds of businesses. So what makes your indicator unique, do you think, relative to, relative to what's out there in the market? Yeah, so there, there's lots of economic indicators out there. We really saw an opportunity to look at something close to real time very specific, very granular from a business type level, and then also very granular from a geographical level. So, you know, we are aggregating anonymized, you know, consumer behavior and business activity down to, you know, like not just this is a restaurant, not just this is a Chinese restaurant, but this is a Sichuan restaurant. So really being able to dig deep into what is happening on a very specific level with enough volume because of our tens of millions of users every month on the app and tens of millions on desktop to be able to really say something about a lot of different parts of the local economy. I love this, by the way, because we do talk a lot about what people are going to do with data. And just for a little background, so Carl Bialik, probably you've read him as the numbers guy on the Wall Street Journal back in the day, and then you worked at 538, um, and, and you've done a lot of work with numbers. And I'm wondering whether you're seeing anything with these economic uh, indicators that are somewhat at odds at the main story that we keep hearing, which is steady growth, strong consumer. What are you seeing right now? Yeah, we're seeing... A mixed picture. So we, we introduced the Up Economic Average looking back at the uh, fourth quarter of 2018 and saw a decline, saw, saw what looked like a slump or the start of a slump. And then for the last quarter, we saw a, you know, a slight rally, pretty moderate, mostly flat, and some weakness in a few key categories. So I think we, we've been deviating a bit from the overall story which I think has to do a lot with the uh, sort of the real-time nature of our data, but also like our, our really laser focus on the kinds of local economic experiences that you have in person with, with a service provider in a store. So which areas are you seeing a slowdown? Yeah, so in this past quarter in particular, autos were, were weak. And, uh, you know, it's something that we've been tracking for a while. We've been interested in sort of what the effect is of the shift from owning cars to to renting cars, to, you know, renting a driver in a car for 20 minutes for a, a ride around town, like what that might be doing to some of these core sectors that rely on people 
owning and using their cars a lot, needing various services, needing to buy new cars or used cars. And it looks like across a lot of different categories, we're seeing a slump there. And then in retail, which again is the part of retail that is that in-person experience going into the store, we're seeing weakness, uh, especially in sort of tech retail, where I think a lot of the activity is moving online. So Carl, how about uh, regionality? Are you seeing differences regionally from some of your data coming in? Yeah, it's it's a great question. It it really depends on the the sector. Like overall, uh, the regions are moving roughly in line with each other. But in some areas, certain kinds of restaurants are stronger. Uh, you know, there's different demands for home services depending on what part of the country you're in. So we are seeing those kinds of differences. But generally. The regional picture is tracking the national one to a way that I didn't expect going into this. I thought we would see more regional differences. We do see bigger differences at the city level and the metro area level. So I want to talk about how you use the data that Yelp collects, because there's sort of the uh, activity in terms of ordering through Yelp or, you know, reviewing through Yelp. What do you what do you pull for the economic average? Yeah. Yeah. So we basically looked at everything. We looked at the full gamut. I mean, there, as you say, there are so many different ways that people interact with businesses and they all show some kind of consumer interest. Some of them are very specific to one sector, like the restaurant space in the case of ordering food. So we looked at like, what is the combination of these that best matches what we think is, you know, the overall consumer activity on the platform. And so we went with that measure. Well, but I guess one question that I have is how do you measure something that's qualitative, that's subjective, like reviews? I mean, do you, do you take that into, oh, a, a, into, that's a great into question. effect? Right. Like is a higher rating an indicator? Yeah. For this measure, we were really just looking at, at interest. So if you went to a business uh, page on Yelp to leave a two-star review because you had an experience that disappointed you, that would still count as go as consumer activity from the point from the purely economic point of view of you likely transacted with that business. Uh, for other studies we do, we do think a lot about ratings and when ratings are going up. Is that indicating an overall increase in quality or is that cha- a change in you know consumer psychology and their propensity to leave negative reviews? Uh, so it's it's definitely something that we consider. And if we if we do see a rise in ratings that we think reflects. Uh, an increase in sort of the quality of the consumer experience, then we think that's an important thing to capture, but is not normally capture in economic indicators. So you capture, I'm thinking, gajillions of pieces of data from all the the users of Yelp, and they're coming at you all time unstructured. How often do you release your number, your index number, your output? Is this a daily thing, a quarterly thing? So right now it's quarterly, and we release it within typically within the month after after the quarter. Uh, we do want to become more frequent and faster. And we're working on that. You know, we're, we're being very careful as well, because we want to release something that reflects, you know, the real underlying consumer behavior. And there are quarterly uh, trends that we, we want to kind of remove. And it's easier to adjust on a quarterly level than a monthly level. So we're thinking about how we're going to do this more frequently, but we certainly have the data to do it. And it's in our roadmap. Cool. Carl Bialik, thank you so much for joining us. Carl Bialik, data science editor, former newspaper man in high school uh, for Yelp with the uh, Yelp economic average. Uh, So very cool. Exactly. (laughs) 
I want to turn our attention to a story that has left me and Paul, if I yes. dare speak for you, scratching our heads. So basically, a top Justice Department official, or several of them, are hoping for T-Mobile and Sprint to lay the groundwork for a new wireless carrier in order to go through with their merger, which is very hard to understand. What would that mean, to creating a competitor? Joining us now to, to help us perhaps understand, Jennifer Ree, a senior litigation analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. So what, what gives? <laughs> I know it sounds really strange, and in particular in relation to this deal. I mean, these companies are telecom companies. What you see in other deals where businesses are involved in a lot of different things, they sell one piece, but what they're gaining is still much bigger than what they're selling. But here, let me explain. What the Department of Justice's guidelines say is once they've identified a competitive problem, the remedy has to fully fix that problem. It has to replace the competition that's been lost within that area where there's a problem. So the two things I'd say about this deal is one, do we know if they have a problem in both the prepaid side and the postpaid side? If they do, then it's truly, you know, fully creating a new competitor. If they only have found a competitive problem on one side, it would be creating a new network and a new competitor just for that kind of consumer. But but if you think about this, um, it's still possible that what a combined T-Mobile Sprint get is better than what would happen if they had to create a new competitor because they'll get a blend of spectrum that Sprint doesn't have today. And the idea here with the remedy is you're absorbing Sprint. You need We need to replace the competitive intensity that's lost. So you really need to create kind of what Sprint is today, not the necessarily the blend of spectrum, this mix that the combined T-Mobile Sprint is going to get. So it's still possible they could create this new competitor but still gain as, as a merger coming out of this, as odd as that sounds. Okay, that, that sounds odd, and I'm a little <laughs> bit smarter than, than I was before. So let's just play, play this forward. Let's say, okay, will effectively, will, will, will the Sprint T-Mobile entity lease some spectrum to whatever third party is out there, and that third party will then operate a wireless network? Is that kind of the thought process? Well, you see the devil's in the details, and this is now going to be a pretty intense negotiation, because obviously Sprint and T-Mobile will try to give up the, as little as they can in terms of actual you know, structural assets, right? They probably prefer sell brands and lease infrastructure and not sell spectrum, and the Department of Justice is likely to want them to put some spectrum in, um, and, and, and possibly even more, even incentivize employees to go over and and possibly more structural type assets. So this is going to be a difficult negotiation for them to, to, to come out with something uh, that works for both. If I'm trading on the rumors of a tie-up or not, and then the success of the DOJ on signing off on this, is is this development positive or negative in terms of at least the DOJ is is engaging and has concrete proposals for how this deal can continue to go through? That's right. That's the positive side. But I would say it's probably leans a little bit more negative because we're going to get to this point, a pain point for these companies where it's too much for them. And they, they have to then decide, do we walk away or, or do we try to do or do we challenge this in court to try to see if we can convince a judge? We know generally where the pain point sort of starts for these companies because in their merger agreement, they agreed to divest, but they agreed that they wouldn't have to go past any loss of $7 billion or more. So we have generally understand that they don't want to give up um, assets that would cause a loss of $7 billion or more. Now, they can waive that term. Other companies often do that when they ha you have to find they have to divest more than they expected to get a deal through. But, uh, you know, it's going to be a difficult decision for them. Both of these stocks, just for what it's trading off about a little over 1%. 
event today. So obviously, as you suggested, Jen, the market isn't doesn't see this as a positive viewpoint. Just give us a sense. This thing has been you know more than a year here. It sounds like the negotiations here, as you suggested, will be very difficult. Any sense of timing of when the DOJ will wrap up its investigation here or, or its re- review? You know, so many people would like to know that, but this is a closely guarded secret. With all the arbitrage traders yes. listening on the line. <laughs> it is a closely guarded secret with between the companies and the Department of Justice. The DOJ has clearly passed its statutory time limit. That is 30 days after these companies comply with a second request, which has to have happened nine months ago. But what this means is that Sprint and T-Mobile have entered a timing agreement with the DOJ. It is confidential, and the companies have not disclosed its terms. So we don't know when the timing expires for the DOJ. Wow. Jennifer Ree, thank you so much for helping us understand that. Yeah. I understand it a little bit better. I actually I do. It this is good. It helps a lot. Jennifer Ree, Senior Litigation Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. 